Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to a final mid-season, pre-season episode of Revolution Recap. We are a few days away from the MLS's back tournament, knock on wood. So we are back talking about the upcoming tournament, and we have some exciting news items that we need to kind of go into and recap. I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today from the Bent Musket is Seth McComer. Seth, how's it going? So happy to be here. So happy to possibly be talking about soccer uh, pretty soon. Uh, but yeah, definitely very excited about the MLS back tournament and to be here with you today, Greg. Yes, and uh, for those of you that follow me on Twitter, I've been uh, renaming it as the MLS Might Be Back Tournament because the last couple of weeks has been a little shaky. Uh, some teams still have not arrived in, down in Orlando. We'll kind of get to that towards the end, but before we, we get to the games that may or may not be happening, we have to talk about some exciting transfer news. It's been a while since we've had an acquisition, and reportedly Matt Polster of the Rangers uh, will be coming to uh, the Revs. Um, Craig Hope of the Daily Mail says that the Revs are purchasing Polster for about 300,000 pounds, which is $375,000. Another journalist from the UK, Jordan Campbell, who covers Rangers, followed that up by saying a few teams are interested and the deal is not finalized. There are still some hurdles to go through, but it sounds like at the very least the Revs are heavily involved, uh, if not close to acquiring Polster. Uh, Polster was a former first-round draft pick of the Chicago Fire, played in 82 games with them from 2015 to 2018, and scored three goals and 10 assists. Uh, He's been with Rangers since January of 2019, but has not been utilized much playing only 10 games. He is typically a right back, but has some experience at defensive midfield. With all this being said, Seth, assuming this, moves go, go, assuming this move goes through, what's your immediate reaction and where do you see Polster fitting into the squad? Yeah, I like it. I mean, um, like you said, he was drafted in the first round, drafted seventh overall by the Chicago Fire. Uh, when he came out of the draft, out of college, he was quoted as saying that he believed his best position was as a center midfielder, a number six, although he was obviously willing to play anywhere. And during the, the first couple of years, in Chicago, he was really touted as being someone who had a tireless motor, worked really hard in the center of the uh, park, and he had good vision to hit that long-range pass. You know, whether it's on the ground or that big switch uh, in the air, those are the types of things that you want to hear um, and see uh, out of a center midfielder potentially. So he he plays in the center midfield a little bit. He gets a lot of uh, credit, and then he was forced to move to the right back position because it became crowded in that midfield uh, area. And he does really well there, showing a lot of those midfield tendencies, um, averaging more than one key uh, pass per game, collecting uh, seven assists in 2017. So those are pretty good numbers if you're a fullback, and he was really steady. Uh, On the other side was Brandon Vincent. A lot of people were giving Brandon Vincent a lot of credit uh, during that 2017 run. But really, uh, Polster deserves um, his fair share of attention as well. So I I really like this this pickup because there's a lot of consistency. He's a young guy. He's 27 years old. Things have not worked out really well over uh, with Rangers for him. So he sees the opportunity to come to the United States to – start to play some games, start to get some recognition, and hopefully get the eyes of uh, U.S. national team coach Greg Berhalter. Uh, Polster has one cap to his name. He was someone that was gaining a lot of momentum before he moved over to Scotland. So this is an opportunity to get back in the fold, to get his career uh, back in line, uh, and hopefully uh, gain some minutes. You mentioned that other teams are uh, at play here. One name that I saw from Mail Sport is Nashville SC. But, you know, there is some hurdles still to happen here, but hopefully he ends up with the New England Revolution. If he does, I'm envisioning that he plays as a center midfielder, that he returns to the position that he came from um, playing when he was in college. And I think that that would be really great for the Revs because they're missing Luis Casado. Right now, I imagine that Zahibo is a starter, that big body, that that uh, big presence in the center of the park but they need somebody to play next to him that's a consistent passer that can move the ball really well Diego Fagundes can do some of that but he's also missing some of the qualities you'd want from the from the the traditional uh box-to-box midfielder I think that Polster uh can provide that if he doesn't play there he would be good competition for Brandon Bay. but Brandon Bay has gotten better with his crossing and he gets a lot of credit and a lot of um, praise from guys like Charlie Davies saying that like he's a consistent threat. He's a good player. So I'm not sure that they're really looking to, to, 
uh, create competition right away for Brandon Bay. And if they are, he's probably getting that competition uh, from Dewan Jones instead, who's been playing there. I listened to one of your interviews recently. So I imagine that um, he's going to be playing in that center midfield, which I really like. I mean, it, he doesn't take up an international spot. His salary probably won't be too big, uh, but he's probably going to be a pretty uh, big presence there, especially with Lise Casado out for the season. Yeah, and you, you've hit a lot of uh, points. And, and before I kind of get into my thoughts on this, I do want to point out, if you haven't listened to our interview with Dewan Jones, please make sure you go back and listen. Uh, it, it's a, a great, great interview with Dewan. But uh, getting back to Mike Polster, I, I don't see how this move makes sense unless he wasn't, the intention wasn't for him to play defensive midfield or central midfield alongside Wilfred Zahibo. Um, you mentioned the injury to Luis Caicedo, and this seems to be a like-for-like replacement. Maybe not a like-for-like replacement exactly, but it's he certainly seems to fit the bill of someone who can come in immediately and make an impact on the field. Um, one thing I, I do was I was wondering about was long term. What is the situation with Luis Caicedo apparently coming back next year? Three hundred seventy-five thousand dollar transfer fee is not nothing. Um, it's it's not a whole lot, uh, but you know certainly there's got to be kind of a long term uh, look here for um, Bruce Arena and. You also got to think, too, 2020, this season might not completely play out. So to spend almost $400,000 on a player, um, you know, for a short-term acquisition doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I, I think he's bringing in Polster uh, as a person who he sees he can kind of build upon. Uh, and I also think about Wilfred Zahibo's contract. Um, he has not gotten a contract or a new contract or an extension since he came over in 2018. I, I'm curious if he is a free agent at the end of the season. And if you've listened to our podcast, you probably heard me talk about Wilfred Zahibo's salary at some point. It's $513,000. It's 500 and $583,000 in total compensation. Um, that's a that's a really big, big number uh, for a defensive midfielder. So I, I'm curious. I, I don't know this. It's speculation, but I wonder if he Polster is coming in to replace Caicedo this season, and maybe he's replacing Zahibo next season. I, I, I kind of see this being kind of a bridge acquisition going into 2021. Um, if you think about him playing right back, which has been his primary position, as you said, Seth, um, I'm not totally sure how that fits. Because as you said, Brandon Bay has been making a lot of great strides. I was personally really impressed with his first uh, two games. Um, if Tayon Buchanan and Justin Rennicks finish their, their chances in the six yard box, he has three assists in those two games. Um, and he's certainly a great athlete. Bruce arena trusted him a lot last year. He started almost every game at right back last season. Um, I know there are some people that are kind of skeptical on Brandon by, but he has been making improvement over, over and over, uh, over time. And, you also got to think about Brandon Bay got a new contract last year. Andrew Farrell just got a new contract. Dewan Jones could play right back. You have a lot of options at right back. So bringing in a guy to play right back doesn't seem to really fit the bill. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So um, all in all, I, I would imagine this is going to be an acquisition for central midfield. And I personally think he's going to be making an impact right away and multiple years down the road for the revolution. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. And I think that the most important um, thing to look at here is that uh, Bruce Arena has made it clear that he wants to build depth at every position. So if you look at all the positions that the Revs have, the area that, that is the weakest was that center midfield uh, spot. Even if Luis Casado is there, there's just not as much uh, depth that you might want, not as much competition as you might want. I mean, at left back, you had Alexander Butner that was brought in as well as um, Sefcinovic. Those are two transfers that were brought in that hypothetically could be starting caliber players. Meanwhile, you have Juwan Jones, who's a promising guy who's not naturally a fit there, but he was you know, showing some strides on that left-hand side. So it's very clear that uh, Bruce Arena wants to bring in competition, and I think that he views it as a good thing if he goes into next year with all that depth. I also think that you're right that maybe uh, there's time to move on from some of those players that, that came over during the Brad Friedel era and that um, this is his opportunity to shape the team that he wants. But I think it's really promising. I mean, uh, this is a young player. This is a player that, that's ready to prove himself, that's hungry. Um, that's all the type of qualities you'd want from a guy who's coming into a squad uh, and, and to compete for competition. So I, I think that, that you're likely to see him in the center of the park. Um, if you've never seen Polster play, take a look at some highlights, and you're really going to love some of those through balls, some of those um, diagonal crosses. I mean, you can imagine with the way the Revs played, uh, I went back and watched some of that first Montreal game, and you see a lot of, you know, uh, the right midfielder cutting in, and there goes Brandon By high and wide. You can imagine Polster hitting that cross field um, opportunity to create 
something in the attack for Brandon Bai to hit those low crosses. So you want to see that. You want to be able to disrupt the opponent with that type of ball. And I think that um, Luis Casado doesn't – like Wilfred Zahibo can do some of that. Uh, Casado doesn't quite do some of that. Um, so I think that with a guy like him, his game is to like keep the ball and then try to, to hit that big switch when possible or to hit that through ball when possible. And I think that that's what you get out of him. I've often said that Bruce Arena likes a big body, which has been Wilfred Zahibo, and almost like a passing possession-based uh, center midfielder to partner with him uh, that can hit those, those dangerous balls. And Diego Fagundes can do that. But Diego Fagunas, I think, is not naturally a defensive-minded player. So, therefore, he gets out of position sometimes or he fouls in the wrong spot sometimes. And I think Polster has a little bit more of that defensive mind. Uh, so he can move the ball well, keep the ball well, find those um, attacking opportunities. But he can also put in the work in the defensive end to really solidify things and let Bo, Busca, um, Carlos Heel, all those attacking guys just say, like, hey, you guys focus on the attack. We got this stuff handled in the back. Um, so I think that this is a positive acquisition. I think that this is going to be a good good thing in the long run for the Revs. And it's always good to have a player who's MLS tested. Um, he's American, so he does not take up an international roster spot. Um, I, I will say if you go on Chicago Fire's subreddit or, or if you look at their hashtag, they are not happy that, <laughs> that he is linked with the revolution. So that's always a good sign uh, for the Revs that, that Polster can come in and make an impact. He certainly seemed to make it, made a positive impression uh, over in Chicago. Um, we did have a couple of questions that I feel like we've already answered, but I, I want to just give a shout out to our listeners. Uh, Mike Kennedy asked, can Polsner play D mid? Uh, if not, can an existing defender play there? He mentions maybe Andrew Farrell or Dewan Jones. Uh, seems to me that's where depth is most needed given Caicedo's absence, which I, I think we agree upon. Um, in terms of moving an, an existing defender there, I'm not totally sure who it would be. I know some people have suggested maybe Kessler or Mancien maybe push up, but I, I think Given the Zahibo's already kind of that big body defensive midfielder, um, I think moving up another big body might not exactly be a tactical matchup you, you want to create. So maybe Andrew Farrell could maybe handle that rigor, but I don't think you really want to mess with the defender. I think Polster is uh, going to be kind of that mat- natural fit um, that that we're kind of looking for to replace Luis Caicedo. Um, Seth, any, any comments on that? I do think it's interesting to think about the defensive options, defensive midfield options, as we go into the MLS's back tournament. Um, if I remember correctly, the Revs play, have a six-game stretch, and they play again, and then a four-game stretch. If you think about the heat, and you think about um, you know, the, the amount of games, the short preseason, you're going to want some roster rotation. So obviously you have Wilfred Zahibo being first choice. I imagine Diego Fagundes is the other first choice. But besides that, it's like, what do you do if there's an injury or if you want to get some of these players off to get some rest? Um, not having Luis Casado is is pretty big. And I imagine that Polster um, would not be joining, or if he were to be joining, he'd have to quarantine for some time um, and and he'd not be able to feature in some of those early games. Um, so maybe you see some playing around. I mean, obviously, Roe can play there, obviously – um, Scotty Caldwell can play there. Scotty Caldwell does not seem to be uh, a favorite of Bruce Arena. I mean, he's, he started in the first game of the season, came off after 45 minutes. He started in the, the playoff game last year, and then he was removed as well. Um, so he wasn't getting a lot of minutes before that playoff game either. So I, I'm not sure how much he trusts Scotty Caldwell or likes what Scotty Caldwell brings. Um, so I do think it might be interesting to say I, I wouldn't move Andrew Farrell because I think Andrew Farrell has found his spot in the center of the, of the defense. Uh, and, and if you want him to pair with Kessler, great, because those guys had some chemistry early on. Obviously, he's played with Antonio Delamea before. So I think that like that's a natural fit to continue that partnership if that you know is the trend they want to head towards. But you wonder if a player like Mancien um, could feature there and get some minutes there. Uh, I don't know what that would look like or if that would be any good. but you're short on options on who can play that center defensive midfield role um, and do so pretty well for the Revs during this tournament. So we could see some creative options. I wouldn't move Dewan Jones there. I do think that Juwan Jones is going to have a, a big role in this tournament because he is so fast. He has so much energy. And I think it'd be really fun to see him come in towards the end of a game and play left or right midfield and just absolutely go at people, just terrorize people in that Orlando heat. 
And I think that that's also a good role for Tejon Buchanan to play. Like those guys can have really big tournaments if they're able to come on and, and you know, flip the game on its head um, during those late moments. So I, I think it will be fun, interesting to see what other players play that central uh, role. Do you think anyone different might play that central role? Yeah, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit last time. Um, I, I, I've really been advocating for Isaac Ganking to get some playing time just because I want to figure out what we have with him. Um, you know, he kind of came off the bench in, in New York City FC that for that 30-minute cameo seemed to impress, and we haven't heard from him for a while. I know not all of that is performance-related, uh, but... You know, I'd like to see Isaac Ganking. I think he's at 18 or 19. He's got some time at the USL Championship, which he seemed to do well in. Um, I'd like to see him play a little bit. I think we will be getting, because as, as you said, we're not going to see, a, you know, the same starting lineup for all of these three games and get, you know, 60 to 90 minutes from each of them. The, you know, Wilfred Zahibo is not going to be going 90 minutes for, for all three of these games. We're going to be seeing a lot of rotation uh, between the Heat and the five subs. So I, I, I would like to see the guys you mentioned and, you know, also hopefully some younger guys uh, see them play. So I, I'd like to see Isaac Anking. I'm sure we'll see Kellen Rowe. I'm sure we'll see Diego Fagundes. I'm sure we'll see Scott Caldwell um, kind of rotate in. And, and I think a lot of people phrase it as, Who's going to be paired up with Wilfred Zahibo? But I, I, it's it's interesting to see how Bruce Arena kind of manages this because there might be a time you have Diego Facundes and Kellen Rowe out there as your central midfielders, and and I don't know how much defensive quality you have there. Um, so it, it's kind of a balancing act of you're not necessarily looking to place one person; you're you're kind of balancing a pairing. So um, I'm sure we're going to see those positions rotate in and out. Um, throughout at least the group stage. And, and as you say, hopefully Polster gets down here because I think he is someone that um, will be a defensive anchor who can come in and kind of add a bit of quality that not just Caicedo was missing from Caicedo's injury, but when Wilfred Zahibo is off the field, um, there's going to be some lacking also. So um, one other guy, though, that I do think might might be a decent fit for a central defensive midfield is Brandon Bai. Um, Brandon Bai, I think I read a stat last year that he was um, – leading the team in defensive headers per game or something like that. He averaged like three defensive headers per game. He's, he's pretty sound in terms of corners and, and, and set pieces. Um, he's pretty decent at defending in the air. And so I, I've always kind of thought that if Brandon Bay wasn't so fast, he'd make a pretty decent center back. Um, I, I wonder if maybe his skills can kind of translate to central d- defensive midfield too. Um, I, I guess at this point where it's kind of the same scenario as Polster, where, you know, maybe you put Polster at right back and you move Brandon Bay to midfield if you want a little more speed in central midfield. Um, I'm not really sure, but um, that, that's a guy that I, I could kind of see fitting in there in kind of an odd circumstance if you need someone to play there for 10 or 15 minutes. Maybe give him a, run him out there for the Orlando, Orlando tournament and see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, this, this whole tournament is kind of fascinating to think about because um, this could be it. I mean, this could be all we get for MLS season. Um, even if it's not, though, those first three games of the season count towards the standings. So if you're the New England Revolution – you need to get some points if this is actually going to be an MLS season. So you have to take those things seriously. But at the same time, it's a really unique format, which might require you to experiment a little bit or try different things. Uh, I don't necessarily think we'll see a, a, a ton of experimentation, at least during the, like, the starting lineups, because I think Bruce Arena, you know, being the competitor that he is, uh, I don't know if you listened to the MLS Gone Wild podcast with Charlotte Joseph, but he was called, uh, Charlotte Joseph called Arena the Gladiator. Um, but I think that, that 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 type of mentality is going to force him to kind of keep some consistency in that starting line, lineup and not necessarily um, explore the, the odd options. I think that he'll go with the safer options, but maybe later in the game we're likely to see some of those those different types of things. Like maybe, yeah, maybe we see Brandon Bride move to the inside because we want to make sure that there's all that effort in the inside and we're winning headers and all that type of good stuff. Um, I think that Anking is a really good shout because he, he could get some minutes during his first year. He showed a lot of promise. Um, there's also a possibility of seeing Firmino, who we really haven't seen a lot of, but naturally does play in the center of the, the pitch. Um, and then Rivera looked really good during preseason, so maybe we get some uh, minutes out of him in the center. Uh, I don't know. It would be interesting to see how this whole thing's approached. I think that it's nice that they have six days between their first and second game, because that allows them to get fit and to feel comfortable and hopefully put out another strong lineup. But that four-day gap might require more roster rotation. And I think certainly after that, if they were to advance in the, in the knockout stages, uh, I think the games come a little bit quicker. Uh, so this is, this is really interesting. The coaching staff are going to have to you know, think about man management. They don't want to pull hamstrings at, from players during this tournament, especially if there is a season. But at the same time, uh, you want to get points and you have to 
you have to be competitive because there's money at stake and there's a, a spot for the um, CONCACAF Champions League. So Bruce Arena, uh, it's, it's something that's going to really, you know, keep him and the coaching staff um, thinking during these next couple of days as he thinks about the starting lineup. The other thing I think about real quick is about um, his history with the U.S. Open Cup. You know, he, he's never been that big of a fan of the U.S. Open Cup. So this kind of has that type of feel to it. But at the same time, those first three games really do count. And he doesn't have to face the Railhawks across the country. Um, so that gives a different uh, feel to it in the U.S. Open Cup as well. And I, I'm going to – you didn't say it, but I know that's a Benny and Sal podcast reference. Uh, I did listen to that Bruce Arena interview as well, which if our listeners have not listened to, uh, I recommend going back and listen to it. But I think he said there were two or three years where he had to go to Carolina and they kept losing or something like that. Um, and so he, he is not a huge fan of the Railhawks uh, or the U.S. Open Cup. But um, I, I got that reference. I, you have to drop in one Benny and Sal reference a, a podcast, Seth. Oh, totally. That's my, my favorite podcast. Besides this one, of course. Besides like, this, this is one. My, yeah, yeah. This is my favorite one. It's an honor to be a part of this podcast. Another, Actually, another podcast that uh, I've recently been listening to and apparently have been listening to us, MLS Aces, uh, asked us a question. Uh, and I guess their hosts are from Chicago, so they were kind of surprised about the pollster news. Um, they asked us about uh, how, how does the pollster acquisition affect our back line? Uh, they're big Brandon Bay fans. They're, they're wondering, where does Brandon Bay fit and does this acquisition kind of change how Brandon Bay will play. I personally don't think we're going to see Brandon Bay move from right back. Maybe, as I say, maybe Arena wants to shift him to the middle of the field and, and kind of see how that works just kind of as an experiment. But I think for the most part, and I think based on our responses, you'll agree with me that Polster is a defensive midfielder through and through. Uh, I can't see him playing right back unless Brandon Bay is hurt. Yep. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if Polster coming over here um, with that expectation that he's primarily going to get his look at the center midfield position. Uh, I, like any player, you want to play and be on the field. So if coach needs you to play right back, you're going to play right back. I mean, ask Kellen Rowe um, what it's like to be moved around throughout your career. Um, but I think that he's a, a center midfielder. Agreed. And it should be noted before we move on that he's not a part of the allocated rank list, ranking list, so the Revs do not have to go through the allocation process. And I was trying to figure this out. I think Chicago still has his rights, so the Revs might be throwing some gammer tam at them uh, to, to acquire Polster if they end up going that way. But... Either way, that's just kind of wrapping it up in a bow. I think overall this is going to be a very positive acquisition for the Revolution and an upgrade in the short term and in the long term. Um, the Revs also made another uh, big kind of personnel move. Andrew Farrell has signed a contract extension with the Revolution, which will keep him in New England long term. The extension runs through 2023 with a club option for 2024, I believe as reported by you, Seth. Am I correct on that? That is correct. Uh, oh, yeah. Best, best Revs reporter in the biz right here. Uh, Andrew Farrell was also set to become a free agent at the end of the season per Seth. Seth, is this a good move for the team? What are your thoughts about the Farrell extension? Yeah, I just want to correct you. Um, Jonathan Siegel, the best on the beat, followed by, of course, uh, Carl, Carl Sutherland. Um, those are the best people on the beat, no question. But yeah, yeah anyway, I spoke to a source, and yes, he, he's going to be here through uh, 2023, club option 2024. Uh, for me, I think this is really important because he was a free agent after the season. Like he could have signed for any club in MLS. Um, and I think that he would have had a market. I mean, he doesn't get that much money per se. He gets a decent amount, but it's not like an overwhelming amount for a starting player um, and for a very reliable player and a guy who's great in the locker room. Um, I will say Andrew Farrell is always willing to answer questions. Uh, I The poor guy probably gets the most questions after a loss compared to any other player in the locker room. And he will admit his own flaws. He will admit that things weren't good enough. Um, so he is someone that's always stepped up. He works with the Special Olympics. He is someone that you definitely want on your team. He's won the captain Iron Baron before. Uh, so him having the option to be a free agent but staying in New England is a sign that things are on the right track in New England. I'm not sure if Andrew Farrell stays – if Brad Friedel is still in charge of the revolution, you know, so Bruce arena coming in and making all these changes and the promises of uh, continuing to spend, to be a winning club, to have a downtown uh, stadium one day are all really uh, sounds like they're, they're more likely to be fulfilled now that Bruce arena is here. And there's obviously some trust coming in with Andrew Farrell to hear that because um, he wants to be here and win championships. I mean, he's obviously comfortable here. 
having played here since he was drafted first overall. But I think that if you're if you ask any player, they want to go to a place where they can win. Um, they want to go to a place where they can get a championship. And Andrew Farrell obviously feels like there's potential here to work with Bruce Arena and to bring a championship to New England. So that's all really positive in my mind. And then obviously the on-field on aspect, he's a good player. Does he make mistakes? Yes. But he's a pretty reliable individual. Um, and he's always willing to put, do, do, do everything that he needs to do on the field to get a win. Um, so to keep him in New England is a real positive. And I think that moving him to the Central has, has worked out pretty well compared to the first time that we've seen it, especially with uh, Bruce Arena. The team has kind of solidified things, and um, he's been pretty reliable in that spot. Yeah, and, and I can't really say it any better than how you said it. I mean, he's a gamer. He's a positive clubhouse presence. Um, he's a leader. He, there's a lot of things you can say about Andrew Farrell that are really positive, and he has been a staple on this team basically for a decade. Since he was drafted, he has played almost every single game. He started, I think, at least 27 or 28 games going back to his rookie season. Um, I mentioned this on a, a podcast, uh, I think, when we did our all-time teams. Um, Andrew Farrell needs, he's easily going to be the all-time leader in minutes played by for the Revolution. He needs, by my count, 3,356 minutes to pass Shalry Joseph for number one in that category. And if there was no pandemic, um, Andrew Farrell probably would have gotten to that level, uh, probably would have gotten to that record before he turned 30. Um, he turned 28 in April, so the Revs have locked him down for ages 29, 30, and 31 with an option for age 32. That, that's not old. You know what I mean? He, he's not over the hill whatsoever. He's still in the prime of his career. So to lock down a you know, major part of your team uh, for the foreseeable future into the, his early 30s, uh, I think that is a massive, massive step. He might not be the most important player on the team, but knowing you have one of your four guys on your back line uh, being Andrew Farrell and, and being kind of that um, building block, I, I certainly think that's a, a huge, huge step. And then the other thing I'll say, too, is that along that back line, there's a ton of youth. Um, our, the, the 2021 back line might be Andrew Farrell and then Henry Kessler, who's a rookie this year, Brandon Bai, who will be in his, I think, fourth year, and then uh, Dewan Jones, who will be in his second year. Or maybe Brandon Bai will be in his third year. I don't know. But, but either way, that's a lot of youth along that back line, and Andrew Farrell can lead that back line. Uh, if you bring in someone completely different, a, a different center back, they, they might have some challenges adjusting to that youth. So I, I think overall, this is a great, great extension. And knowing he's a free agent, I, I think it was a, a very smart move for the Revolution to kind of get this settled now before the end of the year. Yeah, and, and I'll just add one thing here and just say um, I'm not going to be blind to his shortcomings. I mean, like, there are shortcomings. He does make some mistakes. Um, and I think that is totally reasonable to continue to bring in competition for Andrew Farrell and to try to, you know, uh, create that competitive atmosphere within that center back position. That's kind of missing. There's not a lot of depth there, much like the center midfield position. Um, but he, he's someone that you can rely on. He's someone that you can trust. He might not be a best 11 player, but he's always a solid player. So to, to lock him in long-term um, is positive on the on-field because that's at least your base that you're dealing with. And it's a pretty decent base. Um, it's also positive from a PR pers uh, perspective that he wants to stay here. I mean, remember last year you have uh, Kellen Rowe talking about how he was, you know, crying with happiness for having the opportunity to leave New England and, and to, to explore other options. And now obviously he returns. So things are just different in New England. You know, like people um, want to be here. People are interested in being here. And we're not signing the, the big players yet. We're not signing the, the big name DPs, but we're certainly attracting different quality of players and we're bringing in and, and solidifying um, guys who have been here in the past and now really want to be a part of the club. So I, I think it's a good PR move. I think it's a good um, move from a coaching perspective. Lots to celebrate here. And one more thing I'll, I'll note, just because I saw kind of some arguments on Twitter about if you would have a market outside of the revolution, uh, I certainly think someone would have snatched him up and made him a starter. Uh, I mean, Nashville snagged Jaleel Anibaba, who is a rotation player, and he's expected to be a, ma a major contributor to their back line this year. Um, and, and if you look at Andrew Farrell's salary, uh, he made 344000 in compensation in 2018. Even if the Revs signed him and gave him a bit of a raise up to four hundred or four hundred twenty-five thousand or four hundred fifty thousand, that that's the going price for a starting defender. Um, Mansien makes four hundred thousand uh, after renegotiating his contract last offseason. De La Mea makes four hundred twenty-five thousand. So I think I don't know what the numbers are, but if Farrell is 
you know, even giving Andrew Farrell a raise and not having to worry about uh, a center back spot and not having to waste an international spot on uh, a starting center back. Um, Farrell, Farrell has a lot of positive qualities and yeah, he's, he's not a perfect player whatsoever, but uh, as I said, and not to say that they can't bring in any competition, but uh, I, I think there's enough positives there that if you can lock down Andrew Farrell for this is a three-year contract with a fourth team option and give him a, a pretty decent sized raise. I think that's a bit of a no brainer overall. Absolutely. Yep. No complaints there. <laughs> Let's get on to the actual games here. Games start back Thursday against Montreal, maple syrup Derby. Uh, we did predictions last episode on if the revs are going to advance from the group stage and where they will finish. So Seth, I want to get you on the record of where you think the revolution are going to finish in group C. I mean, I don't know. These predictions are always so tough. I mean, especially if you take into account that this is basically preseason. Um, so I did do the online MOSsoccer.com uh, bracket challenge. I have them finishing second, I believe, behind uh, Toronto FC. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I will say this. I think that with the Revs, they have so much creative cha- uh, talent that – they don't necessarily have to be a cohesive unit to score goals and win games, you know, where other teams might rely on everyone working hard and being in it together and, and being on the same page. I don't think the revs necessarily have to do that because Carlos Hill can create a moment of magic anytime. Uh, uh, Bo can do the same type of thing. Busca seems like a decent striker. If he can get uh, closer to, uh, the goal as opposed to playing his back to goal. So there's and, and, uh, Pania is another really great player. I mean, uh, I saw that Luis uh, Binks, who is 18 years old and played uh, two games so far as a defender, named Christian Pania as an absolute nightmare. He said that, that he, he said it was one of the quickest blokes I've ever seen, and he is very tricky, you know? So this coming from a, a very young player, but a Tottenham Academy player, recognizing the talent of Pania. There's so many opportunities for them to have a moment of brilliance that comes from an individual as opposed to a team. But I could see them finishing first. I could also see them being in last. You know, like I think that it's so hard to gauge um, any game in MLS, especially a tournament with a quick turnaround, the hot conditions, no preseason. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't actually remember if I went on the record last podcast. I think I, I pressed um... – Jake and Julian, but I don't think I ever actually made my prediction, but uh, I have them around second or at the very worst, I have them third and going through every single game is going to be competitive here. Um, I, I, there's really no game that the revs should be blown out in, but with that, and with that being said, there's no, that there's no Atlanta, there's no LAFC. There's no, um, I, I guess TFC is your most challenging opponent, but I'm not particularly scared of TFC whatsoever. So this could be a, group stage where the revs come away with all nine points they could come away with one point um and and i think the great variable is we don't know their fitness levels and whatnot but um the revs have been one of the few teams i know they had a um positive covid test at some point according to the athletic but to my understanding all the play the entire team went down to the bubble uh, and they've checked in and there hasn't been any news about them recently so there's no excuse for the revs not to be you know, in form. We talked to Dewan Jones last week. Uh, he said that they're ready to go. He does not expect fitness to be an issue. Uh, I've, I've seen some other players say that fitness is going to be not going to be an issue. I think Brandon Bay said it on the uh, Far Post podcast last week. Um, I know Henry, we talked to Henry Kessler a few months ago. He said that uh, they're maintaining their training and all that. So the Revs really can't have fitness be an excuse. And I think that might be an issue with other teams or some teams that show up late, <coughs> TFC. <laughs> so I, I really expect them to at the least go through, I would predict them to be second because as you say, they have so many attacking options. And if teams aren't defensively sound and if there's miscommunications, I'm expecting this to be really sloppy soccer. And I think talent is going to win at the end of the day. And I think the revs just have a ton of talent on their, on their attacking side. And and I think if you run out Bo, Buxa, um, Heal and Christian Pania, if you run them out there 60 minutes a game, we should be scoring multiple goals a game. Uh, so uh, I, I, I'm very optimistic. I, I still think TFC, I mean, on paper, I have TFC above the revs. Who knows what's going to happen with them? Maybe TFC kind of shows up and their heart's not fully in it. It seems like they're, they're having some sort of identity crisis in, in going down to Florida. So, you know, it might be kind of like, you know, France in the, the 2010 uh, World Cup where they were there physically, but not mentally, um, you know, 
but it, it's very, very hard to protect cause they, uh, predict because you're, you're going off paper and you're, you're trying to predict a number of wild variables, as you say. But I have them as, at second place. On paper, I, I have TFC 1, the Revs 2, Montreal 3, and, and DC United 4. Um, that's kind of my standings. So it seems like you're kind of on the same boat. Yeah, I can see that. And like you said, on the attacking end, you have those those creative players. On the defensive end, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a guy named Matt Turner. Yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. Yeah, so if he, he returns to his form, uh, even if the defense is a little slow or a little sloppy, he's going to be someone that's going to hopefully keep the revs in games. Um, so y- you want those types of things. The roster rotation is going to be a question. Um, the fitness is going to be a question. Um, so you, you don't fully know, but I think every team is dealing with the same stuff. I mean, Josie Altador was in Florida for a while before he went to Canada. So he's questionable for the at least the very first game of the season. Um, so every every team's dealing with stuff. Uh, this this tournament is, is going to be pretty crazy. I mean, when you think about it, if it does truly happen. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to it. Let's go specifically to the Montreal game this Thursday at 8 p.m. Um, and, and again, we're predicting like as if we, we know what's going to happen or as if we know the, the health of Montreal and the Revs. But, you know, ju- just for the hell of it, let's put it on the record. Uh, what's your expectations for the game? Do you think the Revs come out with a win? So interesting game. Uh, like I said, I watched back some of the the first match of the season, um, and it was very, very obvious that they were trying to exploit Dewan Jones. Um, they know that he is not a natural left back, that his positioning is a little questionable, that his body shape sometimes puts him in an awkward spot so you can sneak in behind him. Uh, it was happening a lot throughout the game, and even um, some of the goal-scoring opportunities come from that side. Hypothetically, we're probably imagining that Alexander Butner is going to be playing left back, and uh, that's a guy with European experience. That's a guy who is expected to be a starter and to be a, a pretty – pretty good attacking and defensive option. So how do uh, the Montreal impact adjust if that happens? So that's kind of an interesting wrinkle for me. The other part is that Thierry Henry had his team playing what I consider pretty pragmatic soccer. I mean, that they were tough to beat, that they were um, you know, pretty relentless, uh, and they might not be wowing you with their attacking talent, but you're not going to – to beat them by a large scoreline. We saw that in the Champions League. We saw that in their first couple games of the season. Um, So with more time in charge, even if it's not necessarily training the team, has he instilled a certain mindset, a certain mentality, if you've ever heard that word before, into his players to make sure that they're ready to go and that they're going to be set up properly? Uh, Set pieces going to be very important. Uh, That's going to be all tournament long. We saw actually both teams score on set pieces in the opening game of the season. Um, So that's going to be a factor to watch out for. The last one I'm going to throw out you is uh, Aruti. Aruti, we saw a really beautiful uh, chip goal. Aruti has actually never uh, lost to the New England Revolution since coming to MLS. Uh, and in regular season games, he's played eight regular season games. He's won five times. He's uh, had three draws and he's scored three goals. So, it, it, you know, you talk about Revs killers a lot um, throughout our history. And Arudi is definitely a guy who is a game time player. So lots to like look at here. Um, do, do the Revs win? Sure. I mean, this is a Revs-centric podcast, right? Isn't it better if I say that the Revs are going to win? Fans are happier. Do I know? No, I have no idea. I, I mean, I think that Carlos Heel changes the game. That, like, this game that we're seeing uh, hopefully on Thursday uh, is going to be a different game that we saw from the opening of the season. Like, Carlos Heel by himself, what I imagine coming in from the right flank and allowing Brandon Bay to get forward, is, is hard to game uh, plan against. So, therefore, it's going to cause a lot of headaches for the Montreal impact. Um, do I so? But I, I do probably think that they have a good chance of winning. That's what they, they they need to do if they want to stay competitive in the tournament. If they want to stay competitive in the regular season, but who knows? I mean, it's a it's a one off tournament game. You know, just for the record, I mean, I, I do know a lot of people listen to our podcast. I, I think our listenership went up uh, towards the end of the Friedel days. So I think a lot of people like misery. So if you wanted to take the Felger and Maz route and say that the Revs suck and every player on their team sucks and don't they dare celebrate if they score, I, I think that would be okay. Uh, you know, just because we're a Revs-centric podcast, you can certainly go super negative. I know we certainly were super negative at, at certain points last year. So uh, I, I, with that being said, I think the Revs are going to win. I think they're going to dominate. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's going to be close. It's, it's going to be close. And I think at the very least, the Revs need to take at least one point away. It's really hard. To, normally with, with a group stage in a World Cup, you kind of know, okay, well, we'll be lucky to take a point from this team. We, this is the team we have to beat up on, et cetera, et cetera. I think all these, these three teams are, are on paper already kind of level uh, term. And so it's kind of hard to say, you know, where where you need your three points and, and who you're going to avoid losing to. But I, I still think that regardless of fitness and all that, you need to k- take away at least one point away from this Montreal team because they're very, very beatable. Um, I, I think a lot was going against the Revs, missing heel um, with the Buchanan miss, um, with the goal that was called back for, for being offsides, and then Matt Turner being way out of position, which you, you will never see again. Um, there were a lot of things that went wrong for the Rebs, and I, I think if you put them in a neutral location in Orlando, I, back with, Carly, with Carlos Hill back on the field, um, I, I, I like the Rebs' chances. So uh, I'll, I'll go 3-1 victory, um, but you know I'm a homer on a Rebs-centric podcast, so take that with a grain of salt, I guess. Any news whether or not the uh... – the playing surface is any better than what we saw in Montreal. It apparently can't be worse because mm, a lot okay. of Revs, a lot of Revs players complained about it, and their home games are at Gillette Stadium. So Henry Kessler said it was like playing on a basketball court. So I cannot imagine the wide world of sports complex is uh, any worse than Olympic Stadium. Yeah, and I guess if I'm like trying to uh, be honest here, I do think that there is going to be a win for the Revs. Like you made a lot of great points about this being a different game, um, something just going wrong for the Revs. I also just think it's hard to play those games of like who's going to win because in MLS it's just game to, like you think for sure this team is going to win and it doesn't happen, um, especially with the shortened preseason and all the conditions that we're talking about. Anything could happen. Uh, but if I were to to make a bet, I would say this is going to be a Reds win. And and who knows? We might find out thirty minutes before the game time that someone developed a cough and they're they're missing this game and that changes the entire landscape of it. So anyway, now that we've talked about this for ten minutes, what we say doesn't really matter. I guess that's what our, what we're concluding on. Um, but that, that brings up another question here about, um, kind of the bubble system in place with the MLS's back tournament and how it's not exactly going to plan. Um, FC Dallas is probably the largest concern. They have nine players and a coach testing positive for COVID. Uh, they've had their first game postponed, uh, and moved back to an un- undetermined date. I don't know how they're going to fit in another group stage game later on in the tournament, but they're apparently doing that. Uh, and then TFC has been reluctant to actually fly down to Florida. I think last I checked, they're flying over Georgia or something like that. They're, they're, kind of dragging their feet on going down. And then earlier today, Colorado postponed their flight after having a player testing positive. And Nashville SC has had uh, five positive COVID tests today, including four since the arrival of the bubble. Uh, so, I mean, this is another prediction that we're more or less guessing. But, Seth, do you think this tournament makes it all the way through? Do, you th- do we think we're going to see the conclusion of the MLS's back tournament? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I think that we might see more postponing of games, more moving back of games. Um, but I think that at this point, you, you have the players down in Florida, generally speaking. I believe there's five teams that are still not in Florida, uh, something like that. Um, so and you have some like fully healthy accounts um, for certain teams that are down there. I think that it, it's it's probably going to happen. I mean, otherwise, it's no matter what, it's probably some bad PR for for the the league about how how this whole thing goes down. Um, but I think that you just try to make it as safe, obviously, as possible and manageable and try to be flexible to try to get these games in. Yeah, I do think it happens. Yeah, it, it, it'd be really it'd be a bad look if they ended up canceling this midway through. But and the only way I think they end up canceling it is if there is an outbreak after all the teams arrive. Um, you know, there are a couple. It was pointed out to me that it takes a few days for tests to come back positive. So. Um, I think Minnesota had a positive test, which ended up being a false positive. But that was a bit of a concern because they had been there four or five days. Um, and, you know, that's how long it takes for COVID to, to pop up. Nashville today had four new players test positive. That apparently was since they arrived. So, you know, they may have contracted COVID before arriving, but um, it, it, it's a it's a real mess. Uh, in hindsight, they really should have gone down two or three weeks ago, uh, you know, had a full week of practice after this, you know, bubble theory kind of, you know, runs its course but instead we're going to be having play you know tfc is going to be playing a few days after arriving in orlando and so you might be having covid positive players out on the field um it's a it's a really really big mess and i think at this point you're just hoping for the best that everything kind of sees through but um yeah this this was not executed uh to perfection whatsoever yeah and my understanding is that there's not been any cases directly linked uh from being spread within the bubble but a lot of the cases 
um, that they're saying have happened happened at the home markets. And then, like you said, there's that incubation period, um, and then they, they the symptoms and the the, the testing uh, actually starts to manifest itself. Um, I think alongside that. The original proposal, if I remember correctly, did have the players going down earlier and quarantining um, before they would actually start to, you know, gather together more and to play these games. But because that meant a longer tournament, which meant a longer time away from families, um, they decided to go down this path, which obviously is going to, to pose more risks. So, you know, the hope is I know that um, the a representative from the MLS Players Union is down there in, within the bubble. So you hope that everything's being taken care of properly. Everything is is being done safe, um, because health is the most important thing. There's no question. I mean, like if if it's between health and soccer, you choose health. Um, but hopefully, we could also we can get both, and that we have a, a seamless tournament um, and no major complications. I think in hindsight, if something not catastrophic, but if there was an outbreak. I mean, you really look stupid trying to throw together this whole thing to get three games in. I mean, most of these teams are going to be playing three games. Uh, so you, you got to feel for the players that it looks like it's a bit of a bit of a risk here to go down and you're potentially playing for two or three weeks and then going back home. Um, you know, it's not great. And, and in hindsight, I think Orlando was a bit of a bad choice. I think if they were serious about this, they would be playing these games, you know, like NWSL. I think did a pretty decent job putting it in Utah. Uh, I mean, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if this uh, bubble was in, you know, Montana as opposed to in the epicenter of uh, all these COVID cases. But regardless, uh, we did get a couple of questions. James Downing asked us what our thoughts are on the gourmet meal, gourmet meals the players are being served in the bubble. Uh, Seth, what are your thoughts on, on those meals? Yeah, the uh, what's the account that's out there? The MLS Cup. Yeah, the COVID MLS Cup. Yeah, hang on, I'll look it up. Yeah. Oh, it's the, it's, the it's, uh, MLS. Cup. So the MLS COVID Cup um, Twitter account has been pretty interesting to, to watch. And uh, there are some parts of it I wonder are actually true. Um, but it is interesting to kind of see what's coming out of the bubble. Um, my understanding is that those meals that we saw are not actually like the meals. Those are like the quarantine meals that you get, which, you know, aren't great meals. Don't get me wrong. Um, but like that actual like going down buffet style is is much more to the player's liking. That said, I also saw something, I believe, from that account that was talking about how some of the players that were in quarantine um, were having to go down to get the meal. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see what kind of stories come out of this. Um, CJ Sapong has tweeted that very sentiment, saying, like, if you guys knew what was happening here, you'd be pretty amazed. Um so we'll see. I mean, from now, we just we get these little tiny pieces of information that are coming out. Um, you see positive PR. I don't know if you saw some of the, the guys doing mini golf and uh, playing um, ping pong and playing games. And, you know, you get that positive version of it. And then you see the, the, the lunches and you see like they had a, a video of a snake that's kind of like slithering around. Um, it'll be interesting to see what's the full, complete story. Uh, who knows, later this year, a few years down the road. My guess is that it's either going to be uh, The Athletic that gets a story like that or um, Car- uh, Carl Sutherland. And well, and if we have any players on our podcast, I think we're leading off with what was your experience in the bubble like? Uh, I mean, that that I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of fun stories. We're going to hear about this down the road. But um, I, I was listening to a, another podcast and they were talking about um, how it's kind of divided up. And basically each team has a floor and there's two or three common rooms with games like ping pong and, and video games and stuff like that. And all I could think about was this is basically just a college dorm. Um, it's a college dorm in a, you know, ho- hotel on the side of Disney. Uh, and, you know, in terms of food, you're going to get college dorm food. I mean, that's that's how I saw it. I looked at that sandwich and I said, this is something that would have been served to me at Bryant University back in the day um, because my meal plan was an absolute ripoff. And so, you know, it's it's a dorm style housing, dorm style food. I, I think that just kind of comes with the territory. But while you're talking about that um, Twitter account, I just want to point out that it's a bit suspicious that suddenly MLS has this, you know, anonymous burner account going around a month after Kevin Durant buys an ownership stake in the team. Uh, in the in the Philadelphia Union, I just want to say that's a bit qu- too coincidental for me. I, I have my suspicions that, uh, that that's being led by uh, anonymous account connoisseur Kevin Durant. But anyway, uh, we do have another question here from Gabbro from um, uh, the Revs Discord. What is your excitement level entering the tournament? Has the hi- hiatus waxed or waned your enthusiasm for the MLS's back tournament? 
Oh, I'm really excited. Um, I've been able to watch some of the NWSL Challenge Cup games. Uh, I like the 12.30 kickoff, um, although today I, I, I missed it. Um, 10 o'clock is a little late for me, um, but it's been fun to watch the NWSL. Uh, I, I don't know a ton about them. I've picked out some favorite players um, from various teams uh, based on the style of play and based on how they play. Um, but MLS is something that I know more of. I'm, I have a greater connection to the domestic league. Uh, so I'm excited to, to be able to watch. The 9 a.m. game sounds perfect. 8 o'clock sounds great. 10 is going to be a little bit tough for me. Uh, but I think there's going to certainly be days that, that I make it work. Uh, so, yeah, like the, again, it's all about safety and health. You know, like if, if this is not – if this is too risky, then I don't have to watch soccer, and that's okay. Or I'll watch my European soccer to get my fix. Um, but if they, if they can do it properly – I, I am totally all in. I'm all about the World Cup format. My my excitement's pretty high. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, I think you and I both are probably concerned about health. I think everyone's, all fans are concerned about the health of the players and making sure this goes off without a hitch. But let, let's put aside the health for a second. I personally love this format. And I think I, I would totally support them doing something like this at the beginning of the season. Maybe move up, you know, move up the uh, the the season to mid-February kind of puts a neutral location kind of in the South in Texas or Arizona or Florida. Obviously this is post COVID, but just a warm location where you're not dealing with cold weather and snow do a round 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 Robin kind of world cup style tournament. Um, have the group stage games maybe be applied to the regular season. Maybe not. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I think doing kind of this maybe preseason, maybe start of season tournament would be a really, really positive thing. It gets some excitement. Uh, kind of at a time when there's no sports going on. Um, I mean, just the general format, I, I think, is wonderful. So um, I, I hope it goes off without a hitch. I hope it, it's a major success. And I, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing it uh, being implemented in the future if, if it works out pretty well. I'd, I'd much rather see something like this than, um, you know, what, what was the Desert Diamond Cup or something like that? I mean, no, no one's going to care about those preseason. I'd rather you do two or three preseason games against the USL right after the Super Draft and then go into the start of the season in mid-February uh, with the potential of, you know, those those first three group stage games, all eyes are going to be on those, uh, those, those three games and all, all of the markets across the country. Um, it's certainly a, a third group stage game is going to be seen with a lot more importance than, you know, the third game of the regular season. Totally. Or this could also be something used for the U.S. Open Cup. I mean, it obviously looked different with other teams coming in. Um, but there's lots of potential here to, to see something like this in the future because I do think it creates a lot of excitement. And I think anytime you have a tournament, um, people get into it. Moving on to kind of some listener questions we have not gotten to. There are a couple of questions about what the season will look like after the MLS is back tournament. Dendon29 asked us on Twitter, uh, could you discuss your thoughts for a post-tournament schedule? My bet is you can break the divisions east and west, or, or sorry, the conferences east and west into three divisions, kind of like football. Um, and he kind of goes into kind of his his uh, description. But basically, you only play in your division, so it would be like the Revs. Uh, Red Bulls, NYCFC, Montreal, Toronto FC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I kind of agree with his thought. I think if I think I've read somewhere that they're aiming for 18 to 20 games. Uh, I think you might see something like what USL One is doing, uh, where maybe the Revs will just play the Eastern Conference teams uh, and then maybe the Northeast opponents twice, or or something along those lines. Um, what are your thoughts, Seth? Uh, what do you think we might see post MLS's back tournament? Yeah, I think you have to try to regionalize it as much as possible because um, I'm guessing you're probably going to lean towards using charter flights uh, in order to have the, the safety. So that's going to to drive up costs. Um, so you might want to try to regionalize those to make sure there's a little bit less travel between the teams. Uh, it's it's going to be something that they have to think about and to, to really make sure that safety is the priority. Um, the other thing to consider here is that a lot of what the MLS teams um, – make for money comes from their actual stadium. So fans coming in buying tickets and drinks and merchandise. And at this point, I, I don't know if we're going to see fans in the stadium. I know that like Utah talking about how they expect to have fans and some other uh, USL teams are talking about fans, but I don't know if, if even at half capacity, we're looking at that. Um, so how do you make sure you cut down on costs and still have a competitive uh, season um, that's going to be all important factors to think about. And actually, that kind of leads into the next question of uh, with phase three starting mass, do you think there will be fans post-tournament? Um, 
you know, as 15,000 fans could socially distance in Gillette, hypothetically, I guess this is one of the good times you have a giant football stadium. You could really spread out all 20, 15 or 20,000 of those fans all throughout four decks. Um, do you, I mean, you kind of led into this. Do you, do you think we're going to see any fans post the, the MLS's back tournament in Gillette uh, this season? I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, you obviously have a bunch of states that are, are spiking again. Unfortunately, uh, Vanilla Ice had to cancel his 4th of July concert in Texas. Uh, so you don't have Vanilla Ice doing concerts in Texas. Uh, can you have Texas? Can you have fans in Foxborough? Because we obviously know that at one point uh, Massachusetts was an area where that had a lot of cases. Um, so I mean, it. it it's hard to know. Like if we go back to schools and things are looking good, then you probably also feel comfortable going into a stadium. You know, if, if people are going back to work and things are going well, then you'll probably feel more comfortable going to the stadium. So I think that for a lot of people, those types of things are, are low on the priority list. Um, but if we start to see a, a greater comfort level and that it's not as deadly, it's not as spreading as much as we saw before. Yeah. Maybe we, we see some social distancing that happens within the stadium. Yeah, and, it's, and I mean, different states are going to have different regulations. I think the biggest hurdle is going to be Canada. I don't think Canada is going to be letting Americans into their country anytime soon. So I, I don't know how the international travel is going to happen. California, I think, is going to be on lockdown. I don't expect to see any fans in California this year. Um, in terms of Gillette specifically, I could see something where they do, you know, half capacity, you know, maybe not half capacity, but quarter capacity, which would work for the revs. You could, you know, at a quarter capacity, you could fit 20,000 people. So uh, I, I do think it's possible, but I think there's going to be so many hurdles in terms of just getting a schedule out post the MLS's back tournament. I don't know. If a bubble doesn't work, I don't think you can do the empty stadium route. Um, and if it's going to get to a point where, as you said, Seth, so much of revenue for these major league soccer teams comes from gate revenue uh, and, and kind of, you know, beer revenue food revenue if all of that is lost i don't i don't i'm not totally sure they go through with a full schedule it, it'll be interesting to see but um in terms of fans boy i don't know i really i really really doubt we see any fans at Gillette this this uh this season at least but who knows the the other thing too though you got to think is that i'm sure once football starts all the states are going to change their laws i think maybe maybe it'll be a thing where if mls games go through september and october we'll see fans after that because states will start lifting their restrictions because I, I just don't see them getting in the way of the nfl yeah it'll be interesting i mean uh i can't say that i have any answers related to anything in covid i think that anyone that that does uh is, is probably selling you something um that said everyone has different comfort levels like there are people that are probably ready right now to go to orlando to watch soccer they're, they're, they're excited for it um, there's probably other people that say that I'm not going to into a stadium for, you know, two years. Um, so it'll be interesting. Like just because they open it up doesn't mean you have to go. So is there a possibility they open it up? Yeah, I think there's probably a possibility. Do you, I imagine that the comfort level is going to be there that everyone shows up? Probably not. We did get a question right before the buzzer here as we're recording this. Revolution Report asks us, what's our best lineup right now, Polster included, um, which I think once he hears the beginning of this podcast, he'll, he'll kind of get it. But I'll take a stab at it. You tell me you disagree. Turner and goal, Bootner, Farrell, Kessler, bye. Then Polster and Zahibo in the central midfield. Then Bo, Heel, Pania as your kind of attacking midfield. And then Buxka up front. Is there any disagreement there between us, Seth? Nope. That all makes sense. I, I think that it lines up a little bit differently. With um, I think that you, you'd agree that you put um, – Heel on the right, and you put Pania on the left, and then uh, Bo works as like a second, like a, a striker underneath uh, Busca. But yeah, I think that that all makes sense as a first choice. I do think that Antonio Delamea coming back is interesting because uh, I always really liked him. He's also another player who's very, very honest and very critical of himself. Uh, but I think Kessler has been really, really good, uh, and part of the reason why the Revs were able to keep Montreal at bay when they were trying to attack. Um, Jones is because the positioning of Kessler was so good. Like it was, there was pretty amazing to think about. That was his first uh, professional game. Um, that he was so calm on the ball, and there were so many times where he was, we'd get the ball and then try to pick out the right pass as opposed to just booting up the field. Uh, I liked AJ Soares back in the day, but AJ Soares was Mister like let's clear it out of danger. But Kessler was pretty calm back there, um, which is a really great thing to have. 
He is tall, but he's not great as an aerial presence, but that isn't something that Antonio Delamea is good at. So I think at this point, Kessler is the starter, but it, it will be interesting to see how uh, Antonio Delamea tries to push him and tries to get back into that starting eleven. He is a bit of a, forgot, a forgotten man, and I don't think he's done anything to necessarily lose his spot. Um, but I, I certainly don't think Kessler Kessler has kind of come in and really impressed through two games, and I think Bruce Arena is very high on him. He he's said that Kessler would have been his number one pick uh, if he had the number one pick overall. Also, for him to fall to six was kind of a blessing. And as I say, Kessler did not do anything wrong in those first two games. Um, if anything, I think a lot of fans would make the argument Kessler is the best center back on the team right now. Uh, so yeah, De La May is a bit of a, the forgotten man, and I. I I'm sure he will get his time in this tournament, um, but yeah, kind of a, a tough luck kind of third place for him. Um, there are s- some other news items that uh, we want to just kind of mention. Friend of the podcast, Shalry Joseph, named head coach of the U15 uh, Revs Academy team. Uh, we talked to him a couple of months ago about him leaving uh, Grenada and coming back and, and kind of working with the Revolution Academy kind of in an unnamed role. Officially, he was named uh, as head coach of the U15 team. Uh, any comments on that, Seth? Yeah, this is awesome. This is huge for him. I remember talking to him, I don't know, six or seven years ago, and he was just so bummed that he never got the proper send-off with the Revolution. Um, and he re- understands that his last season with the Revolution, he was injury-prone and that you know those things weren't really working um, in his favor at that age. But he wished that he had the opportunity to say goodbye in a proper way whether that was him taking the field and then coming over and saying goodbye to the four or him coming on at halftime and getting honored for his years of service. Um, But it just never was to happen. And for him to come back to the club, it's just so important. Again, uh, plugging that MLS Gone Wild interview, if you have the time to to listen to that, highly, highly recommend. Um, He talked about how this is something that came about because Anafo and Arena wanted it. Like they came to him soon after taking the job and they said, we want you in the fold. And there was a time where he was going to continue to coach at Grenada um, and also work for the Revs. But Grenada wasn't treating him with the respect that he thought he deserved. So he decided to come to the Revs. And he's just excited to, to work within the coaching staff, to watch uh, Bruce Arena and how he operates and um, all the various uh, support staff that's there and to continue his, his development as a coach. And he also talked about when he was first introduced, he like saw some of the young players and uh, I can't remember if it was enough or arena. They basically said, do you guys know who this, this guy is? And a couple of them were like, yeah, this is Shawry Joseph. And he was like, man, that means so much to me to hear that. I left impact here. And the other thing I love about Shawry Joseph is that he is not short on confidence. He is more than ready to tell you that he is the greatest player to ever play in MLS. Uh, and there's, there's some truth to that. I think that, you know, the, the game has evolved, but I think that if, if Shari Joseph were to play now, he'd still want to be one of the he would still be one of the best midfielders because his game would evolve uh, and because he was such a, uh, a battler. So I look forward to the fact that like he's going to be teaching uh, the future of Revolution players and hopefully we get some really good center midfielders out of that. And one thing, too, that's, I think, important to mention is that Shari Joseph was a great coach with Grenada. Um, they moved up to the top level in Nations League. Uh, they, they won their group. They've qualified for the Gold Cup. Um, I'm not entirely sure why Grenada let him go. Um, it, it's a bit confusing to me to, I, I don't know, maybe if his contract demands were too much, but from a performance standpoint, Chalry Joseph did an amazing job. And now you have a guy coming in coaching your U15 team. Um, I mean, Chalry Joseph in my opinion, should be coaching a USL team. I mean, he, he's kind of proven what he did with Grenada, that he can coach at a, very, maybe not MLS, but at a high level. And so to start out in the academy ranks, uh, to start with U15, um, and, and certainly if, I'm sure you know this, Seth, but uh, you know if you know anything about Shalry Joseph from uh, back in his playing days, he also spent a lot of time coaching youth players uh, and, and being involved in youth development. Uh, and so this is a very, very, natural fit kind of a perfect fit uh, and as you say it's amazing that Bruce Arena is kind of um, bringing back players that have meant a lot to this team I know last year he, he kind of complained at DC United that there's no ring of honor at DC United and DC United doesn't seem to have any interest in honoring their past and I, I think that's a big criticism of the New England Revolution organization that there are a lot of players in their past that you know aren't brought up enough and aren't talked about enough there's no ring of honor um, certainly you hear about Taylor Twelman and, and Shalry Joseph, but there's still a lot of great players that I think not, don't get their due. So um, it's great for Shalry to kind of come back. 
and, and be a part of this organization and continue contributing uh, positively to the future. Yeah, I, I think that Shari one day becomes a USL MLS assistant or an MLS coach. It wouldn't surprise me if this is just a situation of you want to come back. Here's the opening we have right now. And I do know that he is going to be working with the first team. So lots of opportunities for him to, to contribute to the organization. And that's great to see. There was one news article today to other news article today. Um, Brad Friedel did another interview. Um, this is the first interview he's, uh, this is the first time he's done an uh, interview since the last time we had a podcast. Cause we talked about very similar topics, but uh, he basically reiterated that he did not have control over the team. And there were a number of players um, that he wanted gone. Uh, this, this, Article, he, he did this uh, interview with MLS Soccer. It was a bit interesting this time, too, because he also mentioned wanting to get rid of some staff members. Um, he seems to continue to point the blame at Mike Burns, uh, and, and he seemed a little more humble this time in taking responsibility and talked about things he could do differently, but ultimately uh, he seemed to have shifted the blame on the players and on Mike Burns for not getting rid of the players. Um, I kind of gave my thoughts last time. Seth, do you have any thoughts on Brad Friedel uh, kind of continuing to talk about his failed ten tenure at the New England Revolution? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see um, as more stuff comes out about that time, the 18 months. Uh, I know that I'm working on a story about it. I talked to Brad uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is you know, interesting timing to think about how he himself uh, just had an interview with MLSsoccer.com. Um, so hopefully when my article comes out, there'll be some insight regarding his time in charge of the, the revolution and uh, what he thinks about it, as well as some other people who were there to experience it firsthand. And I'm looking forward to that article. A little bit of a teaser for our listeners. So, um, Seth, do you have any final thoughts before we depart here today? No, I mean, I'm just, I'm just excited to see what happens in the coming days. I know that uh, for me, I, I listen to a lot of uh, soccer podcasts, a lot of MLS-centric uh, pod podcasts, and it's been a lot of stuff about uh, COVID cases. Will this happen? Won't it happen? Um and I think that all that stuff is important, especially also the stuff about Black Lives Matter and, and pushing towards social justice. All that stuff is really important. Uh, but in a world that surrounds us all the time, it's nice to think about you know soccer coming back and to be able to to escape a little bit um, and then go back to thinking about those important issues that are happening in the world. So uh, looking forward to it. Looking forward to more podcasts uh, from you guys and seeing what you guys think about what happens with these games. Yeah, and hopefully we'll have you on uh, for these games too. Um, I also should point out too, if you've not listened to the Change YouTube video uh, that the Revolution put out, it was a roundtable discussion talking about Black Lives Matter led by Charlie Davies with um, current and former Revs players. Uh, if you have not listened to that yet, I certainly encourage you to do so. It was certainly very, very well done. Uh, and one thing I do want to mention too, just want to give a tip of the cap to the group who is looking to bring USL soccer to Portland, Maine. Uh, I think it's a bit of a no-brainer. If you did not see Jonathan Siegel's article in New England Soccer Journal, uh, I heavily encourage you to look it up. He is uh, apparently the best guy on the Revs beat. I heavily encourage you guys to uh, look up the efforts that are being made to bring professional soccer to Maine, which is as much of a slam dunk uh, as I can possibly imagine. I speak as a Mainer myself. Hopefully that goes through and hopefully we'll be having some USL League One soccer in Portland, Maine in 2021 or 2022. Uh, Seth, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at SethMan31. And also be sure to follow The Bent Musket on Facebook and at Twitter at The Bent Musket. You can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap and please like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you are listening. The Revs will kick off this week on Thursday in the MLS's back tournament against Montreal. It's unclear when we will be back with an episode recapping that game, but we will be releasing one at some point next week. Until then, thank you everyone for listening and go Revs.